Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, we are bringing you this episode to talk more about COVID-19. I was able to interview the public health pharmacist, Christina Madison, and we had a great discussion about the role of pharmacists in public health, some of the treatment options, and some of the other things that we need to be doing during this global pandemic. Hope you enjoy. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest is Christina Madison, who is a pharmacist. Um, She's also certified as uh, a couple of different specialties, which I'll let her explain more about. She's the founder of the publichealthpharmacist.com and also has uh, two different practice areas. She is um, in the Las Vegas area with a primary site at Hunt Ridge Family Clinic Foundation with an uh, additional secondary site within the Volunteers in Medicine of Southern Nevada. Uh, she's also uh, affiliated with Roseman University of Health Sciences at the Henderson campus and has a lot of different certifications that she has passions around. And now is just the perfect time to be able to bring her and her expertise uh, about public health onto the show. Christina, thank you so much for being a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for for joining us. And now that our listeners have heard just a little about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a little bit about your personal life. Yeah. So I've been working in public health for about uh, a little over 12 years. So um, I had a really unique opportunity to start clinical services with our local public health department uh, in 2007 uh, when I applied for a faculty position at Roseman University of Health Sciences. So uh, at the time, they'd never had a pharmacist. And uh, at that point, I didn't know much about public health. I did know that they had um, a sexual health clinic and a vaccination clinic and a tuberculosis clinic. And that kind of, you know... Uh, made me interested because I did have a background in in critical care and infectious disease at that point. Um, I had done that in my residency. And so uh, I basically went in with my eyes wide open and thought, you know, I can be a trailblazer here. I can make this what I want of it. And it just ended up being like one of the best decisions I ever made. So um, I was at our local public health department for about a decade. And then I transitioned to uh, my current practice setting, which is where I, um, our clinic caters to the LGBTQ community, and we're one of the largest providers of HIV prevention and gender affirming care in the state, as well as uh, I, I volunteer with Volunteers of Medicine, and I help them with their communicable disease management, like hepatitis C and tuberculosis, and I do a lot of their vaccinations there. So that's a little bit about me. I've been credentialed with the Academy of HIV Medicine for about um, six years now, um, actually almost seven years. Um, so, you know, helping the underserved and 
really having a passion for public health and and preventative care and preventative medicine is something that I pride myself on because I feel like unfortunately um, a lot of these diseases uh, impact uh, our most vulnerable and typically uh, you know individuals who are in a lower socioeconomic status and then obviously um, our communities of color. Speaking of education, are you aware of the 2014 drug disposal of controlled substances ruling that regards safe disposal of unused medications? Well, we're lucky to have RX Destroyer sponsoring the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. RX Destroyer ready-to-use chemical drug disposal systems are safe, easy, and affordable products, which protect the environment and can save thousands in fines. To get more information on products, training, and medication waste, compliance, check out www.rxdestroyer.com slash talk to your pharmacist. Sure. So Christina, um, let's start with kind of public health uh, in general. So you're a pharmacist by training. How did you, how did public health really become a, an interest to you and, and how did you um, go about creating the publichealthpharmacist.com? Yeah. So uh, because I'd been doing, you know, a lot of vaccination clinics and preventative care and, and obviously on the sexual health and the preventative care side for a long time, I just really felt like there wasn't a lot of content out there specifically addressing a pharmacist role in public health. Um, other than when you look at sort of more traditional roles like the U.S. Public Health Service and people who work for like uh um, like the Indian health services uh, and, you know, those kinds of things. And so obviously those um, positions were really more focused on chronic disease management versus what really is what public health is, which is, you know, health of the many versus health of the one. So me treating one person's diabetes is not going to help my community. But if I treat one person's you know, sexually transmitted infection or their HIV, or now that we're dealing with COVID-19, if I am able to make sure that one person is at home and is not unduly going out and, and infecting others, that's actually helping my entire community. So that's kind of where this started from. It started off from a passion of me wanting to get the word out about how pharmacists can provide advanced pharmacy services in the area of public health. But then it's kind of evolved into me doing more podcasts and more media appearances and uh, and just really looking at, you know, why investing in public health and the health of your community is a good bet every time. And when we don't invest in things that help prevent infections like vaccinations and um, you know, disease management, things like tuberculosis and um, sexually transmitted infections, HIV, and then things like influenza. And now we have COVID-19 as a respiratory infection that's now communicable and spread from person to person, that that really detrimentally in- impacts our communities. And obviously, we're all being impacted by this, you know, economically, as well as, you know, we're having to evolve and change, you know, even down to the the fact that we now are, you know, having all of our our kids are having to do online learning. And, you know, my college of pharmacy, we went to all online. And now my students will most likely have to graduate without their family members because of the CDC's recommendation for social distancing and not having large crowds for the next eight weeks. 
So, you know, we need to invest in public health. We need to invest in these measures so that when we do have these kinds of emergencies, we can respond appropriately and we can do containment versus what we're doing right now, which is mitigation. Sure. And I love, you know, you explaining that perspective of, you know, having an impact on a single patient versus looking at the community as a whole. And that's really uh, the genesis for the whole social distancing is, um, you know, maybe you're young and healthy and, uh, you know, a lot of the data is showing that um, the the new virus, COVID-19, is most detrimental to the elderly. Um, but uh, we're all uh, being recommended to, you know, stay home uh, for at least 15 days, really try to, to stay away uh, from g- larger groups of 10, et cetera. So I think that that's a really good perspective. The other thing that you brought up was the importance of um, education and how important it is to have accurate information um, out there. And you've, you've been able to, to get out and do a few media appearances and things. Let's talk a little bit more about why it is so important um, to be as a healthcare professional and as a pharmacist to be seen as that trusted source of information and um, what we can be doing about that, whether you're, you're, you know, a pharmacist getting on the media or you're just responsible for your local community, um, patients, family, friends, uh, those that are in your social influence. Yeah. So I think that Unfortunately, bad news travels a lot faster than good news, right? So when we see those, you know, misinformation campaigns and, you know, information that's obviously not factual, unfortunately, it spreads a lot quicker than factual information because sometimes people don't actually want to hear the truth. And I think that is especially the case right now because of what we've seen with what's happened with COVID-19. So a lot of people didn't want to believe that this virus could come to the United States and impact us. And really, it wasn't a matter of if, it was always a matter of when, because, you know, the virus doesn't discriminate. Viruses in general don't discriminate. They don't care about your color, your race, your ethnicity, how old you are. None of that. It doesn't matter. You know, it's going to get you know, I mean, because this is a pandemic and because it is a novel virus, which means there's no known immunity in humans to this virus, which is why it's been so deadly, it, it's, it has to travel through the population. And the fact that we know that the incubation period is now, you know, anywhere from two to 14 days versus say something like influenza, which is about uh, two to three days, the ability for people to be infected by someone without symptoms is a lot higher because that two to 14 time time frame, you may have mild symptoms, you may have severe symptoms, but you still may be able to transmit. And so um, we also know that it could be on surfaces and that could be a problem as well. And so I think that in this day and age, because of the fact that, you know, social media and the fact that we're so connected now, it's even more important that the healthcare providers are the ones that are crafting the messaging. And so that was one of the big reasons why I decided to get into doing more healthcare media contributing is because I kept seeing all these stories, but no healthcare professionals were being consulted 
or if they were being consulted, they were, you know, a very minor quote within the story. But most of the time, it was the reporters that were just Googling the facts and then putting the information out there with no perspective from a healthcare professional. And so if we're not the ones crafting the messaging and we're not the ones getting the content out there, that's how misinformation gets spread. And we need to change that. We need to write the dialogue ourselves and we need to be the face of public health and we need to be the face of factual, accurate information out to the public. And, you know, if we had more, you know, healthcare providers coming out saying, you know, this is a real problem. You guys have to take this seriously. I don't know. Maybe we wouldn't be in the situation we are right now. I'm not sure. Maybe if we had sound the alarms earlier that we didn't have enough personal protective equipment or, you know, the fact that our test kits didn't work right away, we may not have lost all that time in the beginning of the epidemic. So, you know, that's where my perspective is. I just think that it's so important that if we're the, you know, the ones in the community and we're on the ground and we're the one in the trenches, why are we not the ones that are talking to the public and explaining to the public what's actually happening? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think that that's a really good call to action for pharmacists. Um, Not only are we on the front lines, uh, we've seen, you know, all around where, um, during these times of lockdown, uh, San Francisco or, you know, a few other places are, are doing that, that, um, essential facilities, uh, including pharmacies are remaining open because people need to have access to their medicine. And so, yes, pharmacists are, are definitely playing an essential role in providing care, but um, it's it's also a responsibility to provide accurate information. So that is a great point. Um, so, Christina, um, you know the the new information about the coronavirus continues to we continue to get new information uh, daily maybe even almost hourly, it seems. Um, there's so much to uh, keep up with. What are some of the, the best resources that you're tracking to stay on top of this evolving um, new disease? So typically what I've been doing is uh, I've been watching the press briefings. Um, so at the federal level, but then also at the state level, because I live in Las Vegas and we've been hit particularly hard. Uh, because our governor ordered all of our casinos to be closed. So we, I have a lot of friends that are out of work right now um, and are going to be out of work for the next 30 days because we've shut down all non-essential services for the next 30 days in the state of Nevada. So that's the two things that I, I go to first. Uh, and then uh, obviously the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the WHO, uh, John Hopkins actually has a great map that's been tracking the virus since the beginning. Um, there's also a WHO version of that as well. I typically will check both. Sometimes the numbers are a little bit different, but at this point, um, we already know the numbers are going to go up. Um, the big thing that I've been looking at is sort of the trends in countries that are on the other side of where we're at right now. So both China and South Korea uh, have, uh, you know, really done drastic measures to halt the spread of the virus. And yesterday was the first day that China didn't record any new cases of the virus. So it's very hopeful um, that we'll get on the other side of this. But unfortunately, we're still probably about a month and a half behind where they were because that was where the epicenter was. And so I don't know if we're going to end up like 
you know, South Korea and China because of the, you know, extreme measures that we've taken? Or are we going to end up like Italy? Because Italy has had enormous amounts of fatalities associated with the virus. And now they're extending um, their, you know, mandatory quarantine um, an additional three weeks. So I I don't know where we're going to be. I mean, part of this too is that we all have to, you know, do our part. Prevention starts with you. And if you don't do your part, then, you know, the community is going to suffer. So I, I think that, you know, we have to look at it you know, that way. And then also going to your state um, or your local health department. So I've worked very closely with our local health department here just to be able to get accurate information out to my colleagues, because I have a lot of pharmacy colleagues that, you know, don't have protective equipment. I have friends who work in hospital in the ERs that don't have masks, or they're being asked to ration masks. They don't have enough PPE. Um, They're asking me, you know, where are they able to get test kits? Unfortunately, we're not able to do test kits um, from the county anymore because we stopped being able to uh, use the collection tools. So the swabs are actually made in Italy and we're not able to get them now because of the supply chain issue coming from there. And uh, so the private companies like Quest and LabCorp are now having to pick up the slack Um, There was some federal resources that have recently been allocated to get more test kits out and to also get more PPE out. But it's, you know, every day, like there's a little bit more that keeps coming out, but we still don't have enough. So now we're asking, you know, construction companies to donate their respirators that they've had so that healthcare workers can, you know, try to do their job safely. So it's a challenging time right now. Um, but those are kind of the big references that I use. So CDC, WHO, um, your state and local health department, and then um, we have a task force specifically here, but then also maybe going to your uh, your board of pharmacy as well. So they've added a bunch of stuff at our uh, Nevada State Board of Pharmacy on you know different waivers and things that they're instituting now in order to help get more access to care for people who maybe don't need COVID-19 help, but still need help with their chronic medical conditions. So implementing more telehealth and telemedicine. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and I would, would agree. I think that, uh, since, you know, the U S was not where the epicenter was, it was, it didn't start here. The virus started in China. Um, and so, uh, we are able to learn from what has happened in other countries. So, um, you know, South Korea, uh, Singapore actually had some really good, um, results over there. Um, so I think we have been able to learn from other countries, especially, uh, some of these new treatments. So there are new treatments that are just now, um, being, uh, updated. Um, you know, actually, uh, I think they did try Kalitra, which you're probably very familiar with, with your yes. HIV background. And that one was not successful, but they've had some success with some of the other options, um, hydroxychloroquine yes. and, uh, in combination with azithromycin and then one that has not yet been approved, the remdesivir. Remdesivir. Um, mm-hmm. rem- yeah. rem- remdesivir. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and then some of the IL-6, 
options. Um, so yeah, I, I would think I'll, I'll be interested to see how many more of the antivirals, whether it's for HIV or other. And then if you want to speak to that with your background in, um, HIV treatment, um, what else you're kind of predicting or what you've uh, seen so far? Yeah. So the other thing too, that they've actually been using as well is what they call convalescent plasma. So I don't know if you know about this. So they're actually taking plasma from people who've already recovered from the virus and using that as treatment, as well as um, potentially protection um, for those who are in high risk for being exposed like healthcare workers. So that's actually being used as well, in addition to the hydroxychloroquine and the redemisvir, which by the way, that drug was already in phase three trials against SARS. And as you guys know, or maybe you don't know, I shouldn't assume um, that COVID-19 is actually about 80% genetically similar to SARS. And so that drug was already in development, but because the SARS cases dropped off, they actually halted the studies because they didn't have enough test subjects. So uh, that's why, you know, they got compassionate use to be able to use it here in the United States. So they are using it up in Washington state and Seattle for some of their hospitalized patients. Um, in addition to, like I said, that convalescent plasma um, for looking at patients who've recovered and um, utilizing that treatment modality. But it's interesting to see them using some of the older drugs because lopinavir and ritonavir or Kaletra, we haven't used for HIV in many, many years um, just because of the side effect profile. Uh, it is a protease inhibitor um, and it does have um, very good uh, antiviral activity. But, you know, looking at you know, this virus, you know, RNA virus versus DNA virus. Um, it's interesting that they decided to use that as a potential treatment modality. But again, at this point, we're, you know, we're you're doing the clinical trials, we're trying what we can. Uh, and we're hoping, you know, that we can find something that is, uh, is going to be, you know, impactful for those people who potentially could lose their lives um, to the virus. And there's a lot of inflammation that is being caused by this infection. Typically, when you know, when you look at the influenza uh, complications and people, uh, you know, dying from the flu, it's not the flu that kills them. It's the secondary bacterial pneumonia that they get. But that's not what we're seeing with COVID-19. What we're seeing with this is that it's actually inducing um, like ARDS and, you know, fulminant, you know, respiratory collapse. Uh, and that's why, you know, the fact that we're in shortage of, you know, things like respirators and ventilators is, is extremely uh, disheartening because we know that there's going to be several people, you know, by the time that this pandemic has spread all across the country that are going to need those advanced life support treatment options. So I'm, I'm just really hopeful that we can, uh, you know, ramp up supply so that we can give our healthcare professionals the tools that they need to uh, keep our, our public um, as healthy as we can. Certainly. And uh, going back to the convalescent plasma, because I bet a lot of people are not as familiar with that. I did see uh, hear that mentioned during the press briefing today. And um, yeah, so, so in your knowledge, um, I, I've been looking up that that is, was used for Ebola. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really haven't seen that uh, terminology or, you know, widespread use. Um, what's your uh, experience with that? Yeah, so it's definitely uh, something that you see with novel viruses or novel infections. So in 
in the instance, I mean, obviously this is a pandemic, which means that it's it's spread across the globe. But there are other instances where you see novel um, infections where because it's novel and because there's no immunity to it, this is the best case scenario. And so using that convalescent plasma is really uh, the only option you have in lieu of having a vaccination or in lieu of having a, a treatment that's effective. So the concept really is not you know, outside of the norm of what we already do when we think about vaccinations. So it's just with the vaccination, we're inducing that immune response and we're having somebody develop the antibodies on their own. This is us giving someone antibodies that have already been developed in response to the wild type infection. Helpful. Definitely. Um, that's great. So Christina, obviously we're seeing a lot of, uh, changes in, uh, how we work. Not only are, you know, more and more Americans going to remote work, maybe even for the first time. Um, but you know, how we're delivering medical care, uh, is also shifting, you know, um, they have just approved, um, all Medicare seniors can get, uh, telehealth. Uh, there were a couple of barriers to that uh, prior. And um, I know a lot of other uh, commercial insurances have, um, you know, waived any telehealth fees and things. What else are you predicting and what do you see for the future of, of pharmacy practice? I see us expanding our care tremendously because of the response to this pandemic. I see us moving away from dispensing care and ICS being definitely more utilized in order to practice at the level of our licensure and expertise. And, you know, for those individuals who truly care about their patients and really want to help them, please find out from your state board of pharmacy if they're allowing either collaborative practice agreements or waivers that you can start using these telehealth, uh, you know, tools so that you can help your patients. Because, uh, you know, I would hate for somebody to feel like they have to try to go into their primary care doctor or try to use an urgent care or, or um, God forbid, have to try to go to an ER just because they're out of their, you know, their, their chronic medical condition medication. You know, like, are you out of your insulin? Are you out of your uh, your metformin? Are you out of your, you know, hypertension medication? Those things should not be a barrier. If it's a known diagnosis and the person is stable, then pharmacists should be able to prescribe that. And it shouldn't, there should be no limitation. We should be able to do that assessment, determine whether or not that patient is on an effective regimen and provide it to them. No questions asked. Um, to me, I just think it's a no brainer. And, and maybe it's the fact that, you know, my background is that I, you know, did my residency in New Mexico and, you know, they, they've are one of the States that have had a pharmacist clinician licensure, you know, the, one of the longest in the country. And so I worked at a VA, which also in the federal system, you know, that's kind of the birthplace of clinical pharmacy, you know, they've been doing direct patient care as pharmacists for decades. And so there was never a, if for me, when I, you know, started practice, it was always, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be able to do this. I can do direct patient care. I, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of years that I actually did dispensing pharmacy, but it's because I had the opportunity. But now 
I, I think this more than ever is a time where if pharmacists don't see the job that they want, they can create it because this is the time to do it. You know, we're in a crisis and we see a solution to a problem. We need to propose that solution so that they can see that we are the answer and pharmacists can. Certainly. And so, Christina, we've gotten to cover a lot of interesting topics. It's certainly top of mind. I mean, I think that um, pretty much anything anybody is talking about right now is this coronavirus. And uh, so really glad to have you um, share some thoughts. So I uh, ask all of our guests, um, what is some advice that you would tell your younger self or for other pharmacists out there who are just getting started in their career? That opportunity is something that you have to prepare for. So, you know, if you don't see what you want right now, um, that's okay. Every job I've ever had, even if it wasn't a perfect job, I've learned from it and I've taken that experience and I've built the practice I want and I've built the exposure that I want. So, uh, you know, I, I would I would say to my younger self, um, just just hang in there. Um, you know, your first job may not be your perfect job, but um, just take the opportunity when it comes to you. But make sure that you're prepared so that you can maximize the benefit of that opportunity. Awesome. Great advice. And Christina, if people want to follow along, um, you know, as we're, as this kind of unfolds or, or they want to, um, follow you to see what other things you'll be talking about in the realm of public health, what are some ways that they can do that? Yeah. So, uh, my social media handles, um, it's just at the public health pharmacist and that's on, Instagram and Facebook. And then I'm on Twitter and that's the public health RX. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. You can just type in my name, Christina Madison. And then um, I recently started a YouTube channel, which is also under the public health pharmacist. And I regularly post to my IGTV. So awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you as a guest on the talk to your pharmacist podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity and be safe. Thank you. It was so fun to be able to talk with Christina and share about public health and that importance during this critical time with COVID-19. And if there are other pharmacists out there who have great stories, uh, how they're playing a role in combating this pandemic, please reach out at Talk to Your Pharmacist on Instagram or on my LinkedIn or Twitter and love to share your story. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Talk to Your Pharmacist. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.